0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to This Game
1: Wear with me, Ashley. And me, Chris. Say something else then, you sort of look like you were going to jump into something else. No, I tried
0: to do... I was trying to do things differently. Right. I was trying to mix it up a bit, because I got, like I said a couple of episodes ago, got into a rut with those starts, just doing it the same every time. So I went for more like a news reader this time. So you said the same thing in a slightly different voice. Yeah, a bit more serious, a bit more straight down the line. I didn't pick up on that, I'll be honest. Oh, that's probably because I can't sound serious or straight down the line. Apparently not. How are you? You've been playing anything good lately? Uh, I'm getting towards the end of Skyward Sword, which is quite exciting because it's really good. Okay, for the first time you didn't play Mm. it when it came out first, did you?
1: No, it's uh, it's brilliant. It's just as brilliant as you made out it was a few weeks ago. Made out it was. I'm (laughs) really enjoying it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Good, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. The reception to this re-release or remaster, whatever you want to call it, hasn't been the most positive. Though it also hasn't been nearly as bad as people are make, well, some people are making out it's been. It's got a lower score than the original. By a reasonably large margin, especially oh. when you compare it to other re-releases like Wind Waker. So Wind Waker, when it came out, the Metacritic score for the original release, 96. The Meta score for the re-release, the HD re-release, is 93. So there are only three points between them. The Metascore for Skyward Sword, the original, is 93, I think. And the re-release is 80-something, 82, 81, something low, low 80s. So quite a large discrepancy relative to Wind Waker. And I was thinking about how much that might well be down to Breath of the Wild, because Mm. Wind Waker HD came out pre-Breath of the Wild, and Skyward Sword came out post-Breath of the Wild, so the formula had been completely rejigged. I'd also question
1: the what reviews have been contributing towards that Metacritic score, which, what publications are being factored in nowadays compared to when it first came out ten years ago.
0: Perhaps that I don't know, I didn't look into it too much, but I do, yeah, I do wonder whether Breath of the Wild has redefined things to such an extent that actually, if Wind Waker was released again now, whether it would actually fare as well as it did with the HD re release, or whether it would see a similar hit in light of what we expect post Breath of the Wild. It's just an interesting aside. Uh, interestingly, why are you enjoying it? Before we get into our games? we're doing another really good game today. Oh, Great. What are you enjoying about it? It is honestly everything.
1: I was reminded while playing it a couple of days ago of something you said during our episode on it about how it's sort of got under my skin and it I'm low level constantly thinking about it that I'd be thinking, oh, I could do this or oh, I could do this next or oh, I wonder if this means this. And it, it's just there all the time. And there's just, I really like how it's a very linear game, like achingly so compared to Breath of the Wild. But I like how... There are things you can go off and do tangential to that main plot. The way the items, the objects you pick up, the motion controls, I think absolutely fantastic. The music is brilliant. The sense of flying around on the loft wing, around Skyloft and, and above the main areas i guess uh, is great the actual that the map itself that the areas that the fact that the game rather than being a sprawling epic you've only got these three areas and it's really tightly focused and you have to revisit yeah. those areas with new powers and new abilities and see them in different lights uh, it, is, I, it is honestly just everything about it i can't think of anything i do no. not like about it at all
0: good i'm glad because it sounds like you are enjoying it for the same sort of reasons that i enjoyed it originally and I, i'm playing through it again and hannah is playing it as well she's absolutely flying through it to be honest watching her and playing it myself it's making me realize new things about it, have new real realizations about her. one of which is uh, well one of which is that the items so the way that the way that breath of the wild treats items by giving you everything up front and going here's your tools there's your playground go on Go. The Skyward Sword kind of does that in a more traditional Zelda way because it gives you an item, it gives you them piecemeal rather than all up front at the beginning of the game. But it doesn't give you an item and then drop the item after a couple of hours of gameplay. You will, at the end of the game, you will still be using items on a fairly regular basis that you, you that you got at the beginning of the game. And yeah. it's certainly, I think, you're. Did you say off mic? You said that you were at the Fire Sanctuary, or you just done the Fire Sanctuary. So th- everything that comes after this, just finished the Fire Sanctuary again. You're gonna, you are going to be revisiting those three areas. But you are going to revisit them in different ways, as you've said, but ways that you don't necessarily know about. And one particular revisit has you using all of the items that you have to achieve what you need to achieve, like all of them in concert, which really hammers home what they were trying to do. Because again, that feels like the seeds of what happens with Breath of the Wild, where all the tools are there. At the beginning, that mm. that particular moment, it's on the volcano if you need to reference it later. But that moment, going revisiting okay. the volcano where you're using all of these things in concert, it really resonates with what happens in Breath of the Wild. The other thing is the music. There are little like references in Breath of the Wild to Skyward Sword that I wasn't aware of until I replayed it. Because uh, one of which, you know, like the cooking sound, the cooking tune that went in Breath of the Wild. Uh, off the top of my head, no. Have a go. Just go so, go do some cooking in Breath of the Wild, and then listen out for that in Skyward Sword because it's there. It's just a straight lift from Skyward Sword, and there are whole motifs. The there are, there are right. whole tunes that appear in Breath of the Wild that appear in Skyward Sword as well. They are, like originally. I bet there was an article or a
1: YouTube video or something comparing. I'm I'm sure it's happened, and um, uh, before. Before we move off this topic, because I don't want this to be a little uh, mini Skyward Sword um, special, would you say fee or fi?
0: Uh, fee. I, I've i always said fee.
1: Yeah, I've been saying fee, but uh, apparently it's fi because it's to rhyme with words that are key to the game, such as high and sky and fly. Right. Okay. And, that's, that's, fi- and that's official Nintendo canon, according to a, an article I read the other day. However, having read that, I'm still calling it V because it's I just like think it's right. It's like finding
0: out that uh, Smog is Smaug and Sauron is Sauron. I can't get on board with either of those. He, the dragon, will forever be Smog, and Sauron will forever be Sauron.
1: Or that Nutella is actually should be pronounced Nutella, despite being made of nuts. So why would you not call it Nutella? But the actual way you should call it is uh, Nutella. Yeah the world's
0: the world's a crazy place i don't know what to
1: say it it is anyway enough of flipping skyward sword what game are we playing today
0: good question thank you for asking it as i said it's it's a it's a proper it's a proper good game uh i think you're gonna like it but i'm not entirely sure because i don't know if you've played it or not yet i'm rubbing my hands i'm girding my loins I think I'm better off if you haven't played it because then you're going into it fresh and you'll be dead excited about it because I know that the people involved are people you like. So it is this game where... You join an eclectic cast of kids at a special summer camp specifically for the psychically skilled. While there, you maraud through the mental landscapes of your teachers, a conspiracy theorist, and even a frankenfish, all in pursuit of your goal of becoming the best psychic secret agent there ever was. Psychonauts. It's Psychonauts. So uh, you know that because you've played it then, I guess. Or was I just... Too obvious.
1: That was a very obvious one, but it may be not to people that haven't played it, I guess. Uh, Yes, I have played Psychonauts, and it is flipping
0: brilliant. It is. It's very, very good. It's the first game made by Double Fine, which is Tim Schafer's development studio after he left LucasArts. He left... I found out. I didn't realize this, but he left LucasArts explicitly because LucasArts decided that they were no longer... Like, they they said... We are no longer interested in making adventure games, and Tim Schaefer yeah. was like, Right, I'm banging out. Yeah, and he went off and he created Double Fine, that was in 2001, and this was the first game they made, and that and it came out in 2005, so there was like a four year period in between spounding the studio and actually putting the game out.
1: Was this genuinely the first game Double Fine made?
0: Yeah, and as I say, we had this like four year development cycle, which at the time. 2001 ish to 2005 was was quite a long old slog, and I can't imagine a a, a startup studio being allowed, like being given the space to yeah. do to do that these days. I just can't see it happening. Maybe it does happen. I'm just ignorant of it, but I don't know. Especially given, I, I don't know if you know this, but this game was tied to Microsoft as well. Microsoft were very supportive in the beginning. Of the development for the game, and they were intending that it would release for the original Xbox as like an exclusive title. No, I didn't know that. No, I didn't either. So, what happened for it to not be an exclusive? One of the people that was involved on Microsoft's side, who had been sort of pushing Double Fine and, and internally in, in Microsoft, sort of saying, oh, yeah, we're quids in with this game. This is going to be brilliant. It's it's Double Fine. It's Tim Schafer. We're on to a winner. This person, I think, maybe left Microsoft or something like that or was redeployed elsewhere in Microsoft and then... All of the confidence on Microsoft's end sort of dropped out of the bottom and they were left sort of high and, well, they were left high and dry. It took them a few months uh, to find another publisher who they found in the form of Majesco. Do you know Majesco? No. Okay. Well, anyway, Majesco have got a long and storied history. They had been involved in the industry for a couple of, well... Yeah, nearly a couple of decades or about a couple of decades. They they had worked with Nintendo. They'd worked with Sega in the early days. They had all, done all sorts of things. They even actually licensed the Mega Drive brand and they put out the Genesis 3 or the Mega Drive 3 or something like that. So there was the Sega Mega Drive. Then there was the Mega Drive 2. And then the, and then Majesco. The and better-looking older sister. Yeah, exactly. Something What's like Mega that. What was Mega Drive 3 then? I don't know. I didn't look into it. Shall we have a look now? I've never heard of such a thing. Let me let me see if I can find one for you. So it basically it was a redesign. But you've seen the Mega Drive 1 and 2, haven't you? Like the different Yeah.
1: So growing up my brother had a Mega Drive 1 and then I got a Mega Drive 2 I think for the following Christmas and the Mega Drive 2 looks so much nicer.
0: Looking at it now, actually, the Mega Drive 3, it looks fairly familiar to me, but I don't know why. The first Mega Drive was sort of red. That's the second one. The first one had a a grey
1: button to turn it off and on, and it had a a volume control on the actual Mega Drive, and it also had a headphone jack, I think, whereas the Mega Drive 2 was just the, the cartridge slot, and then it had almost like an oval shape it had the uh, uh, an on off button and then a reset button on the other side this oval
0: shape right okay looking into it a little bit further uh they licensed it from sega to re-release in 1998 so that's oh, post, okay that's post playstation post n64 and it was the genesis 3 released in north america but presumably probably also one of those aberrations that exist within brazil um so sold in brazil in much greater numbers and and much later on in the in the life cycle of the system than anywhere else in the world Uh, brazil seemed to have a bit of a attachment to the sega systems the sega mass system only stopped selling as i think i've told you before fairly like relatively recently in the 2010s so uh yeah majesco made some money off that it was a good job though because majesco didn't fare very well out of taking on the publishing duties for psychonauts because psychonauts was a commercial failure Mm. It was like officially registered as a commercial failure wherever you do that. When it first came out, it sold about a 100,000 copies total worldwide. Ooh. Yeah. And Majesco... <laughs> it was so catastrophic for them majesco said oh yeah we're not going to publish games anymore we're just gonna we're not publishing them you know like the big ones we're not touching any of those we're going to do value games and we're going to do handheld games you know like easy quick turn around sort of things anything big no thank you no we're not 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 their fingers burnt yeah well and truly burnt and they yeah they properly banged out of anything even moderately weighty they just didn't they weren't interested after this
1: well cyclops is one of those games that was a bit of a sleeper hit it just rumbled it re- if i remember rightly, it reviewed well and it started this kind of ball rolling and while it may be sold quite poorly initially it it got bigger and bigger into the into this, this big uh brand which is is known as
0: well now
1: and for being such a good brand as well it's, if you can call it a brand i guess
0: oh it's definitely a brand uh, we've got so the reason that we're talking about this game is because as of recording in a matter of days the sequel's coming out from microsoft systems interestingly uh sort of coming full circle because microsoft bought double fine a few years ago uh, after psychonauts 2 was announced and was in development it's also coming out on game pass which i don't know if you have access to a pc or a mobile phone or any of those things because you can you can play it no no mobile phones in your life or no nothing nah, okay no. fine well then you're stuck you'll have to you have to decide whether it's worth the investment from just as an aside before we go back to where we were it looks amazing like i don't know if you've seen anything about it it looks absolutely brilliant
1: a, a couple of weeks ago there was a big thing where loads of games outlets did obviously had some sort of press thing where they could go and play a couple of levels so i read through a few of the write-ups on some of the websites i follow and it was unanimously across every single outlet i read it was glowing and, and yeah it was
0: uh... it really does look good it looks ambitious which if you can fault i mean i don't know if it is even right but if you can fault it for anything it's that it the sandbox world that it built was was quite small psychonauts but at the yeah. same time that was by design because the whole game was set inside this summer camp whispering rock it was called which also Doubled up as a government facility to train the next generation of psychics. Let's put a pin out there then and just roll back because we're sort of 50, 50 minutes in. We needed to roll back anyway, so. Yeah, we will put. We yeah. We're going to put a pin in I, it, but I don't know where you want to take okay, us. Where well, you, Where did you want to take us?
1: We'll We'll put a second pin or whatever. I just want to roll back, sort of. If If anyone listening and doesn't know anything about Psychonauts, knots, obviously explains right, in the, okay. this game where. Blurb. Yeah, well, this what this always happens.
0: What? I've got a train track to follow, and uh, you know, like every uh, a certain point, you just like shove the train off the track. Yeah, like a petulant child with a toy train. It, yeah, I don't know. You want to? You want me to tell people what Psychonauts is? Yeah. So that was later on in my uh, discussion, but I'll do it now because the boss has said so. So Psychonauts is a platform adventure game in which you take on the role of a, of a young boy called Rasputin who has run away from home. He was part of a long line of circus acrobats and he left home because his dad, he he says, he tells us that his dad hated psychics and he, Raz, has psychic abilities. So he runs away from home and he finds his way to this place called Whispering Rock, which is this secret government facility that is masked is hidden as this summer camp for kids uh, in the american tradition of summer camps he knows that it's this place that creates and trains or discovers the next generation of psychonaut who are government agents who all have psychic abilities and they uh, presumably are tasked with doing things that other se- secret agents can't do. The game takes place over a couple of days and over those couple of days, it, those couple of days are stipulated because the I think the camp counsellors or camp coordinators have rung Raz's dad to come and pick him up and that hangs over the game because Raz has this image, has this view of his dad as, a, as being a very negative influence on his life and that's the way he sort of sees his dad and that is important actually. We'll, we'll maybe circle back round to why later but over the course of these few days these weird scenarios start to happen and he starts to uncover a sinister plot going on in this summer camp i mean the whole thing's weird anyway because the summer camp is designed around uh, learning psychic abilities like telekinesis levitation pyrokinesis invisibility and all these things and in order to do that you enter other people's minds so the first and that's how the game is structured so the first level of the game is entering, I think his name's Captain Oleander, who is like this military-style guy. You enter his actual mind. He puts a a physical door on his head. The door opens, and Raz is sucked into the door and then manifests inside the mind of Captain Oleander. It's the the mind of the, the planes, isn't it? Yeah, the mind of Captain Oleander is like a war zone, because that's the way he thinks of himself and that's the way presumably he thinks yeah. of the
1: world and that's in each level is is that sort of similar structure where it it's it showing you the subconscious of each character you go into yeah and as you've said and kind of linking back to what we said at the start about skyward sword each of those ones you go to each of those levels you go to
0: is a new area and do you get new abilities in each one you 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 get equipped with new abilities in a variety of different ways yeah. um, and at a variety of different points each level though it's worth it's worth emphasizing this there are thirteen i think levels I forgot to check that, but I think there are thirteen levels, and each level is extremely distinct in theme and tone and design from the from what came before and what comes after so to give you a little taste of that you've got this war zone um, level which starts it starts you off, and then um, another level is like a party zone, sort of a disco themed level, which takes place inside uh, one of your instructors' heads. A third level, and I think this is one of the best, is set aside. Huh? No, the... you see, everybody says that. I'm not sure that's the best level. Oh. I think that the best level. Well, it's hard to say because there's lots of good levels. Yeah, but the lungfish level do you remember the remember. lungfish
1: is that is that the one that's like godzilla
0: yes yeah it is yeah. i do remember that then. so during the course of the game you end up at the bottom of the lake uh, that this summer camp is set around it's called lake oblongata and at the bottom of the lake is this frankenstein lungfish that has been affected by the psychic uh, <laughs> energy around the summer camp um and it's been it's been changed And this lungfish has a very overdeveloped mental landscape, mental space. When you enter Linda's mind, it's all based around this place. I think it's called Lungtropolis or something like that. It's a a cityscape and there are little lungfishes all running around, little lungfish citizens all running around. And you are absolutely enormous uh you said about godzilla you are the godzilla inside mm. lungtropolis and you go marauding through the city uh sort of accidentally destroying buildings and the Lungfish military that exists inside linda's linda the lungfish's head they all come and they try and attack you and fight fend you off and save lungtropolis and the whole level is set around that and, uh, and at the end of it you fight a similarly oversized Oleander, who is this time wearing spandex and is designed, is modelled on a Japanese superhero character called Ultraman. Oh, uh, yeah. And you have this big showdown, which is sort of Godzilla-esque against the the way that Godzilla fights kaiju. Oh, I think Ultraman does it, or, or, or Power Rangers, or the Super Sentai that they're based on, or whatever. You know how they become oversized yeah. and they fight as giant mechs against giant monsters. Bowser Fury or Bowser's Fury exactly yeah so that level I think is phenomenal and and really inventive and that is what runs through the game it's just so inventive from moment to moment there's so many different turns that it takes I
1: just make it clear for anyone as well this game is not grounded as you've probably guessed it's not grounded in in reality at all but that extends to also the the character design they're very abstract It, it reminds me a lot of something tim burton-esque or even actually that uh, my life as a courgette the french animation i think the characters are very similar designed in that so it doesn't take itself seriously but what i remember really enjoying about it is how there's some really deep themes within it and the the character design and the levels which themselves are as Ashley said very distinct in terms of the the gameplay, but also the look of each one as well. That they're very, it's very clear as well in each one that it is an abstract creation as well. Uh, it, it just hides some very deep themes within it, which I remember
0: really enjoying. Each level, though, that, like they've really thought about how to put them together and how to represent the psyche of like the, the character. character that they represent. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you mentioned the Milkman Conspiracy. That is the level that takes place inside a character called Boyd Cooper. It, it takes place in his head, and Boyd Cooper was a resident of the asylum that existed before the summer camp so on the island in the middle of lake oblongata there was an asylum and in the asylum are some former residents who were there and they've sort of existed in this asylum uh, once it closed down they've they've managed to sort of scrape out uh, an existence one of them is boyd cooper boyd cooper is a former milkman and he's also a conspiracy theorist which is timely and when you go into his head he is obsessed with multiple conspiracy theorists but that all comes out in there being sort of a really intense focus on being watched and feeling like you're being watched and yeah. very clearly being watched the the power that you get in there i think is clairvoyance and clairvoyance when you use clairvoyance it shows you how the character that you use it on sees you so it's about perception, how how you're perceived by others and the paranoia that can sort of spring from how you feel like you're being perceived by the rest of the world.
1: Well, I, I remember that level in particular because firstly, the gameplay was really good. Mm. Secondly, the level design was really fun. I, I love the kind of the 1950s aesthetic personally yeah. anyway. Like, for example, Masters of Sex. I don't know if that's something yeah. you've watched, mm. but mm. I, I love the style of, of that show. Is that but Kinsey? The, uh, no, it's... Um, uh, it's, it's a Michael Sheen. Yeah, drama and it's Michael Sheen, bits. is it
0: is it I, I, Ma- I, masters of sex, is it uh like I think dramatization of Kinsey's sex work in the fifties? Uh, that sounds not correct, but I think he's is because his name's Mas Master I I it's been a few oh, years right, since I okay, watched okay, it, so I can't mm-hmm. remember. But but thirdly I know you I mean I remember, like Mad
1: Men type. Yeah, precisely. But thirdly I remember the actual denouement of that level uh, mm. being not not that it made me cry but it really had a proper emotional a heft to yeah, it yeah. and
0: it, it it really stuck with me i think that's something yeah. that the the new game is going to do an even better job of as well because there there are sort of moments where so basically you're going into people's heads these the particularly these characters that are ex asylum uh residents you're going into their heads and you are fixing their problems yeah. and you that might you know a, a less charitable um sort of reading of it might say that their treatment of mental health uh, wasn't necessarily spot on um but at the same time there is an no, there is an attempt there to understand and to represent in meaningful ways and i think that's something that the game that they've sort of recognized going into psychonauts 2 and that they're gonna there's gonna be an even more concerted effort to represent things in meaningful ways um, okay. in in the sequel at the same time it's, it is still there and uh the one of the strengths of this game is that even the side characters even those tangential even the small parts in this game even the smaller characters in this game they are given some heft as you put it they are they are rounded out and they are Mm. fleshed out in in meaningful ways and it's everybody every single character in this game is a real person or it feels like as fantastical as the setting is it's inhabited by real people so yeah uh, uh, I can't speak more highly of the level design. That that level as well, like the physical representation of the level, the fact that you've got this 1950s street that spirals yeah. completely out of control through an out through through an open void, and to see that, that, like the the actual physical representation of the landscape, the environment represents his mental state. The fact that it has just it, it, it has spiraled out of control yeah. for him as well, and it it's everywhere. the 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 very the crescendo at the end of the game is called Meat Circus, and I think I so it's an old game. They're not re-releasing that, are they? So I think I can talk about Sound it. Like- well, they don't need to. It's everywhere. But we'll come back to that. The crescendo of the game, the the end of the game, the last level is called Meat Circus. And it, it comes about because Oleander, who is this character that you enter his mind at the start, who is obsessed with war or very sort of war, war orientated, his dad was a butcher. So I said about Raz's dad at the beginning, and this yeah. is where it comes back. So Oleander's dad was a butcher. And he did not have a very good relationship with his dad, which you learn through the course of the game through uh, something that we might find a a moment to discuss in a minute. But you learn that he doesn't have this very good relationship. You know that Raz doesn't have a very good relationship with his dad. And you then learn that Oleander is the big for all intents and purposes. But... It's the psychic energy in in Whispering Rock that has sort of taken hold of Oleander and it has meant that his hang-ups, his his mental struggles have sort of become much bigger in his head than they were before. And so his dad, this, this manifestation of his dad that exists in his head has has come to dominate him and, and all of his thoughts and it's turned him a little bit bad. It's, it's turned him into this baddie. Um, so, you are at the end. I think you sneeze your brain out by accident and it's seized. <laughs> yeah. So, Raz sneezes his brain out. it seized and it's put into a jar or something. So, I haven't played this game for quite a while. So, forgive me if I'm getting this wrong. It's put into a jar with Oleander's brain. And because of that, the two psyches, the two mental landscapes of Oleander and Raz meld into one and you end up with meat circus because Raz's mental state is affected Uh, by his upbringing in the circus. And uh, Oleander's mental state is affected by his dad, who is a butcher. And he's become... He's he's looming ever larger in Oleander's mind. Uh, And it all gets thrown together into this meat circus thing. The end of which sees you fight a giant version of Oleander's dad, who is wielding these massive carving knives, before then being confronted by a zombie version of Raz's dad, who is laying into Raz and telling him that he'll never be a good enough acrobat or whatever. He he challenges him to an acrobatics contest, for lack of a better thing, where you have to do all this platforming. And then after the platforming moment, the two dads become one. And it's like this horrible chimera of terrible dads (laughs) that you have to take on. (laughs) Thankfully, to redeem the fathers, the father figures... Raz's real dad turns up and helps him to battle against these mental manifestations of terrible dads. So, yeah, it's uh, when you say about sort of the heft and the weight, I think a lot of it comes at the end. This uh, yeah. this sort of representation of parental figures, particularly shit dads, uh, and the making up of, of Raz and his father.
1: And it's so abstract, but it, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? That that would be yeah how that would hang- dealt, be dealt with. Yeah. yeah. It reminds me a lot of the way you're talking about this. Of Inside Out, the way that that yeah. represented themes. Uh, one thing that, that I remember in the levels are the collectibles are suitcases because they're yeah. emotional baggage, which I think is yeah. a very clever pun. But Inside Out does things like very similar, like the train of thoughts is something that Joy yeah. boards in Inside Out, so they're they're taking these concepts and right, how can we make it? They've literalized with the universe, exactly, abstract yeah, concepts, haven't
0: it. they? Yeah, and uh, yeah. yeah, so yeah, and it's a, a quite an astute comparison to make because they do do the same thing inside out and and psycho psychonauts yeah. and i think um, as well th- y- y- you can see the lineage that tim schafer's gone
1: on from you, you can see the journey that Tim Schafer's gone on from Grim Fandango to this. You, you can see that Grim Fandango had these characters that were well-realised and this fantastical world that, that's very abstract but is grounded in reality. You can see it in Psychonauts as well. Um, I think his games are brilliant. I could talk about Tim Schafer's games till the cows came home.
0: Other appearances for Raz? then. He appears in Alice Madness Returns, which is the sequel to American McGee's Alice. Do you, are you familiar with those games? I'm aware of them, yeah. Yeah, so they're like an adult version of Alice. In one land. And in Alice Madness Returns, he actually appears as like this desiccated skeleton on a throne. But he's very noticeable, very clearly Raz. He also appears in Runner 2 as a playable character, an unlockable playable character. Runner 2 is like a rhythm platformer. Very good. you would probably enjoy it. And he also appears in The Hat in Time, which I know that you've played. Yeah, I have. I did not know he appeared in that. Um, Do you remember figments of my imagination or figments of imagination in Psychonauts? They're like uh, very colourful outlines of thematically relevant pictures. No, I don't remember. Okay, that much. so they're another collectible that you can get in Psychonauts, and in a Hat in Time, he appears as a neon colour, green neon outline on the floor of a level. I haven't found him in Hat in Time either, but apparently he's definitely there. Oh. That's a nice little Easter egg. Yeah, exactly. That's what I thought too. There's loads more to talk about with this game, but I hope that I've at least caught or captured a little bit of what makes it interesting and brilliant in this first half. It's probably a good time to go and play some. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. We both played different bits of uh, Psychonauts tonight and we've both come to the same conclusion based on those bits. You played the beginning. I played primarily actually Waterloo World, which I don't know whether that's a reference to Waterworld or not, but Waterloo World is Napoleon Bonaparte possessing his ancestor. Um, so that's what I've been playing Napoleon Bonaparte against Fred. Whereas I jumped in
1: playing a new game because you had played this game on PC uh, last year sometime and it got obviously mm. significantly further and i was just at, at the start just doing the first level which is a very clever tutorial level masquerading as a proper level but it's still tutorial nonetheless so two very different experiences but both of us give psychonauts a very massive two
0: thumbs up Yes. Yep. Yep. I kind of I thought we'd end up there. Yeah. I think you probably knew that we'd end up there. Oh, I was already completely biased towards it being two thumbs. Oh, you were up. already biased, were you? Yeah. Okay. I played this recently. I was playing this last year during the uh, the first lockdown, I think. And I got to I got to the Milkman Conspiracy, and I think I finished the Milkman Conspiracy before I stopped playing it and moved on to something else. So yeah, I I used some save games to skip ahead, and I was playing Waterloo World, which I'd forgotten, all takes place on a board game. So Fred and Napoleon, are they're, they're having a mental wrestle. The The backstory is actually quite funny because Fred was losing at games to this other person that he knew. And Napoleon was already resident somehow in his mind. And Napoleon decided that because Fred was so averse to victory... Uh, that he would take over the controls, take over the reins of Fred's body and and mind, and he did. He did just that, and everyone thought that he was crazy, and he ended up in an insane asylum. Lovely. When in actual fact, what he was man what was manifesting in him was actually happening. Napoleon was really taking over. So
1: interesting stuff. And you mentioned some really clever Inception esque use of camera angles and perspective and no it's not even camera
0: angles and perspective it was so there's it's inception if you like or uh, and also a bit of Alice in Wonderland which kind of explains the American McGee's Alice reference that happened later on you as Raz you take on Napoleon on Fred's behalf in this board game so in order to do that you climb up a ladder on the side of the table and as you flip from as you flip over the edge of the table you start descending another ladder into the board game and you you get smaller Uh, by a degree. Then you speak to Napoleon and he gives you the rules on the game. It's sort of like an Age of Empires turn based strategy type thing, but board game-based. You are tasked with recruiting soldiers and units, carpentry, carpenters and things for Fred. When you go over to a door, you take another, you, you shrink by another degree. And then you're moving between sizes. So very, very small to medium-sized to control the the units. Mm-hmm. So you're recruiting the units as a very small character and then moving into this medium-sized Raz to, to control the units. And it all reminded me very much of... Alice in Wonderland. And then I, as a very small version of Raz, I climbed up a ladder that led to a window, looked through the window, and through the window in this um, model of a house in the board game, you could see Fred and Napoleon sat around the table that you were on playing the board game. So, yeah, it was one of those infinite mirror type Mm. situations where... You were looking in on something that you were taking part in, that you were looking in on something that you were taking part in over and over and over again.
1: There's a really clever picture book that's just reminded bit of called Zoom, uh, which is actually right. available on. Uh, someone's, oh someone's yes, you told me
0: about this one. Yeah,
1: yeah. It starts off. It's with... like
0: Goragoa for people that have played Goragoa. Maybe I know. I know what it is. Yeah.
1: So, so Zoom is where I, I can't remember quite the sequence of events, but it starts off maybe like a chicken, for example, and then it zooms out, and the chicken is inside a house, and it zooms, and then the next page it shows you that. Uh, the house is part of a farm and then the next page it then shows you the farm is part of a, a play set so and then the next page it shows two children playing with this this farm and so on and so on. and it, it just goes out and out and out and it goes down some really weird and wonderful paths it's a, a fantastic mm. book which i'd, I'd highly recommend
0: Goa Goa kind of works the other way around so you have these you have these pictures that then you can you you have four windows and then some pictures and you can match parts of pictures together to then progress further into the background of the pic of one or the other picture. Um, so you're moving through the pictures in the in the same way that zoom is zooming out. You are sort of zooming in mm. on various aspects of of these pictures that you're manipulating. So yeah, go and zoom if you are interested in perspective and playing with it, then you should have a look at those two things. Yeah, so Waterloo World was uh brilliant and quite quite involved. So we were talking about adventure games and how Tim Schafer left LucasArts to make this expressly because they decided they weren't making adventure games anymore. And then he didn't make an adventure game. Yeah. But actually Waterloo World had aspects of adventure games. So you were tasked with various different problems that you then had to use the environment to solve or use the things at hand. To solve, so one of them, for example, one of the villagers that you wanted to recruit as as an infantryman, he was hungry, so you had to find him something typically French to eat. And there was an escargot farm also on the board with tiny little wooden escargot, tiny little wooden snails that would run away from you. So you had to go and find those snails to then catch and give to the villager before he. Would, was recruitable and usable on the board.
1: And that whole sequence, divorced of being in Psychonauts, sounds like any classic adventure point-and-click mm. game for the 90s. The fact it's absurd, but makes sense for the game and, and the, the atmosphere it's portraying.
0: Yeah, exactly. So yeah, Waterloo World was brilliant. Um, oh, the other thing that I played was, uh, and that I forgot to mention. So, So one thing that you should be absolutely clear on is that this whole thing is vast, like there are so many small details and large details that I know I'm gonna miss out on something that is very important so one of the things that I missed in the first half was to mention Dr. Legato or Legato, I can't remember his name, Uh, and he is a a dentist, he is the dentist who has been stealing people's brains and that is the big secret thing that is going on around the camp around the summer camp that Raz sort of starts to unravel and I, I played a little sequence with him where w- w- towards the end, and he also has a he has a sidekick called Shigor, who is a female version of the n- usual igor and y- you said about Tim Burton in the first half that for a start that just rang through mm. on everything that I experienced this evening, but also um Shigor and Legato reminded me of the professor in a nightmare before Christmas, and also jack's you know, Jack's love interest, uh, Sally, Sally, who is also involved with the professor and these two Legato and Shigor, they have a similar dynamic and a sim- they both have, actually have similar personalities to those two characters out of An Hour Before Christmas, which is obviously uh, Henry Selick, Henry Selick, uh, and presented by Tim Burton. But still, the aesthetic is there.
1: And I had a quick look on a YouTube video of the Milkman level just to remind myself of what it was like and and how fantastic it is. And the atmosphere of that, the 1950s suburbia, reminded me straight away of of those scenes from Edward Scissorhands of the the, uh, suburbia um, around uh, where he's raised and where he obviously ends up in the film as well so we've got all these reference points Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland there's this fact that it's this fantastical world that's being looked at in a very skewed way that seems to run throughout all of Psychonauts and it's done very well as well
0: there are a number of crossover points I think in terms of culture where it just makes sense that they all sort of coexist together and I think the Tim Burton stuff Tim Shaver's output there's crossover there there's a bit of Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett yeah. that sort of feels like influence on tim Schafer's bits and bobs they all sort of inhabit the same ecosystem of fancy and humor Mm. i don't know if that's coming across in the way that i am sort of thinking about in my head but hopefully people know what i mean when i when i say that that they all exist in the same little sort of bubble while we're talking about the atmosphere
1: the game's creating one of the things that i was really impressed with was how the game created this living breathing camp so when you first started the game you were tasked with well i was tasked with as rats going from the, the the dormitory area to the um what's the chat called the baddie oh oleander thank you i was tasked with going to him for my first level essentially and i could concentrate there and that would be it i'll that'd be fine. But I decided to do a bit of exploring and just find some of the pickups because there's a, a myriad of pickups to collect as well. And I kept coming across these little scenarios where some of the children were interacting with each other or I might stumble across one who was by himself and then it would trigger some little cut scenes where I'd find out a bit more about how those characters ticked and starting to understand them as characters. And every single one of those was a well-realised character that, seemed realistic again realistic within the confines of the game Mm. uh, atmosphere and environment etc but i realized that how that was optional that i could discover those if i wanted to and i chose to discover Mm. them and it just helped me create that sense of realism and grounding
0: yeah and that happens throughout the game you'll find people you find different characters in different scenarios and they seem they're built in such a way that you do come across them sort of by accident you trip over them uh which suggests that it was going on whether you were there or not obviously it's it's very scripted and it wasn't going on it's not it's not that kind of game it's not it's not people living their lives absent of you regardless um but it gives that impression and i think it takes a great deal of skill to build something like this that does that and does it so effectively.
1: And I also felt that was um, extended to within the gameplay as well. The tutorial level I played, rather than just being lots of help text, for example, it was this World War II, I think. Yeah, World War II. Um, battle that was Rage On and you were finding your mm. way through it and the help was provided to you by Oleander who was, it was like a, a projector like an old fashioned projector mm. that was being projected onto these planks of wood that were sticking out of the ground and then the projection itself was black and white and he was talking to you directly but that was, it just felt so well integrated and
0: it was part of the world that it inhabited rather than being a, a text box that's overlaid onto the game it existed within the world yeah um and I, I really like it when games are able to do that fe- uh well anyway so uh, and this is a fairly early example of it i guess i can't well i I was, I was gonna say i can't think of any that were doing it at the time but they're probably they almost certainly were i'm just i think i'm losing my mental threads uh aptly your mental because it's getting on to midnight yeah. uh, now as we record so uh the the closer it gets to midnight the the more my brain melts out of my ears so
1: The collectibles, the
0: figments of imagination
1: with these, as Ashley said, I think in the first half, these these neon silhouettes almost. There were so many of them and the vast majority of them were different to each other. In, in the World War II tutorial I played through, there were tanks, there were soldiers, there were explosions that you could collect. And some of them were integrated within the actual gameplay as well. Mm. So there was one, for example, that was a soldier pointing towards a wall and I saw that thing of the, the imagination picked it up and then realised I was pointing towards that wall so I bashed it and lo and behold that was the path I was supposed to be following but rather than there being a bit of help text or something like that it was giving me the clues to then piece them together myself and treat me
0: as, as uh, you know a, a, a big boy a vaguely intelligent human being a, a big boy exactly yeah. uh, brilliant gave them purpose in a way that some games don't so you you actually made the comment that they kind of lead you through the game Uh, lots of games have like a a mechanic that that is a guide for you. So Fable, uh, just to pluck something out of uh, at random, Fable had a glowing path, like a a shiny path that you could follow to your next objective or to the next part of your objective or whatever. Uh, More recently, Ghost of Tsushima had a really inventive one, I thought, where when you pressed the PlayStation's big button in the middle, Mm -hmm. the wind would blow in the direction that you needed to go towards your next objective. Here... They use these collectibles, these figments of your imagination to sort of mark your path through the game. You knew if you were maybe doubling back on yourself because there were less of or no Hmm. uh, figments of... Of imagination, and because of them at being all, so.
1: and because of them being neonist to be out against the background, wherever they, they were, they did, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, I liked that some of them were dynamic as well. So in that level mm. that you're talking about, there are the ones where you where you're platforming over the wings of the planes, and there are actual figments flying around the planes as well. So you can sort of time your jumps to, yeah to grab those they do have a purpose they help you level up and you have to hit certain ranks to progress through the game at certain points but there are so many of the figments that actually that ranking up i i don't think i've ever run into it as a brick wall if you don't collect them i don't know how really you would go about the game without collecting them but if you don't collect them you would end up sort of being stopped yeah uh from progressing from making progress in the game
1: but they're not collectibles for the sake of collectibles which we've encountered quite a few times while recording yeah they've been given episodes. purpose which is exactly which is nice yeah another thing within the levels which again classic platforming were things that you could see in the distance or things that were behind obstacles that you couldn't quite get at at this point so you were then mm. having to make mental notes rather than to come back at the- later on the game, when I've got that particular ability. We talked at the start of this episode about Skyward Sword, and, which does it a lot, and I felt there's a link between this game, certainly to other Zelda games, that that use of, again, not explicitly saying, you need to come with your disability, but just letting you... Uh, make those choices yourself yeah and there's so many just overriding throughout the game like the YouTube videos I dipped into as well there's so many good ideas within this game it's so clever it reminds me of Mario games where there might be a level that has something in particular that's fantastic and then it's just the next level is just completely dropped and each of those ideas could be a whole game in itself Psychonauts just has these concepts these ideas that are just there one minute and then the next you're on something else it's just I had such a blast playing it tonight
0: well if you think uh, just the levels that we've mentioned or played you played Oleander's mind which is the war zone um which is fairly straightforward platforming but with a few twists a very strong theme running throughout then I've played Waterloo world which is a board game with adventure game twists I have mentioned and you've looked at the milkman conspiracy which is a like a mystery a murder mystery almost because mm. it's who who killed the milkman or something like that isn't it yeah then you' got meat circus which which is like uh, your super hard platformers. I mentioned Super Meat Boy last week, I think, uh, in last week's episode. So Super Meat Boy, super hard platformer, like Pinpoint Precision. And you get a, a fit a sense of that in Meat Circus, which is the very end where you challenge, you test tasked with some quite intricate platforming before facing off against a big old boss in the form of your father's. Then you've got... Well, you've you've just got you've just got so much variety from from one to the next, and just based on those ones that we have have talked about there. Oh, I, oh, and uh, Lungtropolis or whatever it's called, Lungfishopolis? Fishopolis is it? Fishopolis? Have I been calling it the wrong thing? I can't remember. I can't, remember can't remember what it's, it's called exactly. But again, just a, a completely different kettle of fish. Uh, almost like yeah, you, we've talked previously about power fantasy wish fulfillment sort of gaming being dropped into a city scape as a giant monster and being able to wreak havoc in that city Mm. there's fun in that it's it's power fantasy wish fulfillment so yeah just so much scope so much variety all very 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 well executed all tied together in this package of uh, of dealing with with mental wellness or lack thereof
1: with, unsurprisingly for Tim Schafer games, with an exceptionally good script as well that was yes. so well written. But also funny, I was laughing. And again, I was surprised with Tim Schaefer, but I laughed quite a few mm. times at, at, at different bits as well.
0: Yeah, the script was written by Tim Schaefer, but it was also it was co-written by a man called Eric Walpole. Do you know Eric Walpole? Not at all, no. I hope I've said his name right. So he wrote his first... Writing credit, I think, in gaming is Psychonauts. He then went on to write for Half Life Two, Portal, Left 4 Dead, and is is back for Psychonauts Two. So he's he's pretty um, he's pretty on it when it comes to writing Portal and Portal Two. Have you played those? Yes, because I the have, scripts yeah. for those are similarly very good. Eric Walpole, as much as Tim Schafer, probably.
1: Uh, you talked off mic as well about how I pointed out that Tim Schafer left. Um, Lucas because they weren't making adventure games anymore, and then he made a game that is sort of primarily a platform game rather than adventure mm. game. You said that the idea, the genesis for the ah, concept yeah. of Psychonauts, came from something that he was experimenting with with Full Throttle.
0: It wasn't even an experiment, so it, it came from Full Throttle. Sorry, they, yes, they, yeah. they, they, um they considered this sequence in Full Throttle where the main character, whose name I've forgotten, uh, the main character has a sort of a vision quest that is induced by taking peyote which is that the um the drink that you make which is the cactus that has hallucinatory effects um but when they took it to LucasArts when they took it to the bigwigs they were vetoed presumably because of some kind of family friendly (laughs) angle that given that it was about biker gangs, full throttle, uh, doesn't really make all that much sense. But then they held on to that idea. They held on to the concept. Um, and and it became Psychonauts. Like, they spun it out into Psychonauts. And to be honest, I think that it was probably a blessing in disguise because Psychonauts is pretty damn good. <laughs> um, and if they'd, if they'd included that idea in full throttle, it's... I wonder whether actually Psychonauts would ever have happened. So,
1: And it would just have been a bit of an aside, really, rather than the whole game, which is exactly. where it is here. Mm. Uh, that whole yeah. concept as well, the hallucinatory, which I'm sure has been used in lots of things, but it reminds me of The Simpsons, the episode with the chili uh, cook-off.
0: With, with the fox, like the spiritual fox, is that that one? Yep, voiced by Johnny Cash, nonetheless. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, right, okay. I didn't know that. I, I've watched that episode more than once as well and i have it's never i've never twigged that that was johnny cash yeah interesting there you go
1: uh, i'm sure you can tell them that we are absolutely enamored with psychonauts um it, it is great it's just as i remember it being which i'm really pleased about as well uh double fine are still going obviously psychonauts 2 is due out this week at the time of release and I've re- it's
0: not even due out this week so when this releases it'll actually have been out for a day
1: oh, and i enough.
0: will have been hopefully playing it for some hours in the evening so yeah hopefully people are enjoying that and hopefully that will sort of push people towards psychonauts the the first game and hopefully it's as good as it looks Mm. and as good as the first game
1: but i just want to give a shout out to other double fine games because i've played Mm, quite a few because of how much i enjoy double fine and their their output but um, stacking and costume quest are two that spring to mind for me as being absolutely brilliant stacking is this a platformer yeah platformer uh, is an it a adventure platformer? I always thought it was adventure,
0: more adventure game.
1: Yeah, and it's got its whole concept of using the, the stacking Russian dolls. you got to stack inside other ones to gain the powers that you stack inside. It's really clever, really fun. And then Costume Quest is a, an RPG Uh, action-type game with characters. It's Halloween and whatever outfit you're wearing. You then go into these turn-based battles. And if you're dressed as a little cutesy robot on the overworld made out of cardboard boxes, you go into the battle and see this massive hulking mech.
0: Uh, The other one that springs to mind is Brutal Legend, which is its much larger scope than either of the two games that Chris mentioned. They actually made a transition. I think Stacking was the beginning of it, or or maybe Costume Quest. I can't remember which way they released. But after Brutal Legend... I think. They transitioned to making smaller games. So Brutal Legend was Double Fine's last big stonker, if you like. It's
1: an action game themed around Heavy Metal with Jack Black, if I remember rightly. Yes, it it was.
0: Yeah, and Jack Black is in Psychonauts 2. He plays a character in Psychonauts 2, so there's a link there. I think that is the first game that Jack Black was actually in for Double Fine. So, um, yeah, it it was pretty good. I've got it on the Xbox 360, and I I only remember enjoying it. I never finished it, unfortunately. It had, like, RTS elements to it as well so there were moments where you came out of this action adventure game and took on this rts challenge every so often so
1: but, but that's what double fine now that they're really good at balancing those different genres there's another one i played on the 360 called iron brigade i think it was and it was uh, is that, like a mech. is that double fine yeah it's a tower defense game where you are controlling this like robotic mech it's all like world war one um but also like a steampunk version if i remember correctly uh, and you control this robot during the tower defense elements you control it on the fly so if you're basically being attacked you can physically go over to it and shoot it down with your cannons or, or whatever but i remember that being really fun as well so my point is basically double finds seem to do really well at whatever genre or, or game they turn their hand to and
0: are, yeah. if they're not on your radar they certainly should be plenty of Really fun stuff coming out of that studio. Yeah. For sure. Too long didn't read.
1: Psychonauts is brilliant. Psychonauts 2 has been out for a day at the time of release and we are both sure it's it will hopefully be just, just as, as, as good. good. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Oh, oh, I'll tell you what we forgot to mention. Uh, the Sesame Street game that Double Fine made. Have you ever seen that? That's news to me. It was called Once Upon a Monster and it was a, I think it was a Kinect experience. Right. And you could like interact with Elmo and Big Bird and all sorts of stuff. And I think you designed yourself as a monster. Was it good? I don't know. I didn't play it, but it genuinely looked fun. They made they made a, another Kinect game called um, Happy Action Theatre or something like that. That was fun. That was very fun. Just silly, silly little experiences like playing The Floor is Lava. Right. With Connect in your front room, or popping lots, hundreds of balloons in your front room, and then they made this um, Sesame Street game. So yeah, stuff for things for everybody. That's the other thing about Double Fine games for days. You're trying to wrap up, and I'm uh, I'm just rambling on because it, again, it, it's nearly midnight, so uh, my brain's not working quite as well as it usually does so I, i'm gonna hand back to you. you you can wrap up all right thanks well that's that really uh thank you for listening if you've enjoyed
1: us please join us on social media we're on facebook twitter instagram youtube please remember to like share subscribe rate review go back and listen to our old episodes if you haven't already we're nearly in episode 80 there's plenty uh to choose from there's fun for all the family available
0: yeah not all the family sometimes we do swears oh i do i'm not good at not doing this way, sorry. Choice spams, the family there. Any, anyway, anyway, uh that's the end of the episode. Thank you for joining us. Join us again next week for another game. Uh yeah, yeah, that's it. Yep.
1: Bye. Ta-ra.